Our reading for today comes to us from Hosea, the prophet. So let's hear now God's holy word to us. Hosea chapter 5, verse 8 through 6, chapter 6, verse 3. Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Sound the alarm at Beth-Avon. After you, O Benjamin, Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of punishment. Among the tribes of Israel, I declare what is certain. The princes of Judah have become as those who move the boundary line. Upon them, I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because he was determined to go after vanity. But I am like a moth to Ephraim. And like dry rot to the house of Judah, when Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king. But he is not able to cure you or heal your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and none shall rescue I will go away and return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. And in their distress, they earnestly seek me. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has wounded, but he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. And now, O God, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, there's an old cliche that men hate going to doctors, and I suppose I'm probably fit in that category. I'm no exception to that. And I was explaining this to my wife and saying, it's not actually, uh, the problem isn't that men, I think, can't deal with pain. It's actually more painful uh, to stay away from the doctor than it is to go to the doctor. But I think what it is, is something about getting the diagnosis of that pain. It's somebody prodding your pain or saying, you didn't do what I told you to do last time at the visit. Uh, Only a doctor really gets to be the one who gets to sort of press on that. You know, does it hurt when I do this? (laughs) Yes, yes, it hurts when you do that. But in general, I think everybody avoids pain, of course. Pain, uh, this is what really the purpose of pain is in the body. It tells us something is wrong. Our body is telling us, don't touch that. Don't grab that object. Uh, But I think we can say something, too, more broadly, and that is our culture seems to be living in deep fear of pain, uh, beyond our natural reaction of sort of uh, absolute fear of pain and a love of comfort. We love our comfort. We love our safety. I don't know if you've uh, heard this phrase that's been used uh, recently, safetyism. It's a phrase to describe a kind of philosophy in a sense that almost describes our culture, describe a philosophy where safety is really someone's highest ideal, someone's highest value in the way our culture is so adverse to any kind of discomfort. Uh, and it really isn't just limited to physical pain or discomfort. 
Uh, I don't know if you know, but the, I think the original use of that term, safetyism, came from a book, a very important book, called The Coddling of the American Mind. Uh, it was a book a few years ago about education in this country, primarily uh, higher education. And if you remember when this, uh, some of these buzzwords first started coming out, safe spaces, trigger warnings, and this whole idea that even not just physical pain, which we obviously avoid, um, but that our country is afraid of anything that might challenge uh, our ideas, painful to uh, our ideas, the things that might make us uncomfortable. Well, safetyism can become a temptation for us as Christians as well. Safetyism can creep into our theology, our view of our Christian life, our faith. We can sort of shrug off anything difficult. So what I want us to do today uh, is to avoid the coddling of our Christian faith, you might say. Our text today uh, that we had read for us is a text that might challenge us. It's a picture of God that uh, might be kind of uncomfortable. It's in God's sovereign intensity of who He is, His intensity and His judgment, the intensity of His love, serious uh, our God in His judgment, serious in His mercy, a kind of fierce love, you might say. So what I want us to look out for today as we look at this passage, we try to avoid sort of coddling of our faith, is how God brings us salvation through judgment, through discipline, and what He does to call us to Himself. And as you look at the text there uh, in your Bible, there are really three main sections that we can divide out um, as well. So look at the, as you look at the, the verses there, the first section that we'll look at is that judgment is coming. And that's chapter 5, verses 8 through 12. Judgment is coming, the Lord says. The second section is God's purpose in judgment. What's the purpose in judgment? That's verses 13 through 15. And then finally, uh, is responding to that judgment and its result. Responding to the judgment. How do we respond to it and what is the result of our response when we respond to that judgment? That's chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. So, as we begin this, let's get some context for where we are here in the prophet Hosea. It can be very easy to get lost in the prophets if you've been reading through it. So, let's just remind ourselves again of the big picture. God's plan in the Old Testament uh, was about calling a people to Himself that are going to be the means for blessing the whole world. God calls Abram, and Abraham and his family are God's special and holy people. And through them that they're going to bless the rest of the world. God's blessing would be on them. They would share and be a light to the nations, showing forth what it means to be in relationship to, to God, to show what God's blessing looks like. And to describe all of that, the Bible uses a special word. He, the Bible speaks about a covenant. God covenants with His people. He enters into a covenant, a special relationship. It's got promises, but also responsibility. And God rescues His people and places them in this covenant. It gives them a land, gives them now an opportunity to be faithful and to be uh, His people before Him, dedicated to Him. But what we see is when we turn to Hosea, is Hosea from the very beginning, if you know, opens with judgment on Israel. Israel has not been faithful to God in His covenant. They're abandoning covenant with God. And really one of the refrains up until this point where we're looking in Hosea, has been this idea that uh, Israel has forgotten God. And God actually says, then I'm going to forget them. I'm going to abandon them. 
to the nations, to the other foreign gods that they have given themselves to and to the hand of their enemies. And that really brings us to verse 8 here at the beginning of our section. It's really one of the first clear announcements of this judgment coming in the book of Hosea. Uh, The prophet's going to tell them clearly what this judgment looks like. He says, blow a horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah, sound the alarm. These are all cities that he goes on to describe. And he's basically saying the alarm bells are going to start ringing. It's going to be an announcement that there's enemies who are coming to you. We're getting this picture of the judgment that God is bringing. It's an invading army. It's a sound of coming war. But this picture of a blowing horn is also, in a sense, a kind of mercy as well. It's saying, yes, enemies are at the gate, but you have a chance to act. Hear the warning call to make it through this. God's declaring, he says, what's certain, what's coming, what's sure. He's declaring it so they can know what to do. They can remember when they come to this point. They were warned. But they can also hear God's instruction on the other side of judgment. The prophet actually goes on to list several sins here, but it's really in verse 11 that we see kind of the most poignant statement of the sin of God's people. They are oppressed, it says, they're crushed in judgment. It says, because they were determined to go after vanity. Determined to go after a vain thing. Some of your translations, other translations say to go after filth. Others say to go after human precepts or empty precepts. I think vanity kind of captures it all. It's something not worth pursuing. Something worthless, but they are determined to go after it. Something not worth real value or weight. That's kind of a picture of what sin is. It's pointless. It's futile. It looks great on the outside, but there's no substance to it. It's a picture. They're determined to do it. Notice again, it says they're determined to go after it. Another way to say it, and again, other translations that you might have, is they are intent on pursuing what is worthless. Intent on it. We'll see more about this in a second, but we can see here, this is not a punishment, by the way, for a kind of single, small infraction. By the way, God is just, if he were to do that, uh, to punish after a small single infraction, something uh, like that. But this is clearly something that's been going on for a long time in Israel. It's not accidental. It's not unintentional. It had been actually over 200 years in biblical history that northern Israel had actually separated from southern Israel, southern Judah there. They had actually removed all of the faithful priests. There's really no faithful priests in the northern kingdom at all. 200 years, the Lord slowly and patiently sent prophet after prophet, calling them back to him. But they're determined, it says, to go after a vain thing. And God's response here is intense. Look at verse 12. He compares himself to a moth, to dry rot. These are not normal images of what God usually compares himself. But we can think of Jesus' words that a, a moth destroys. Moths cause ruin, especially the expensive clothes. Uh, they feed off of decay. God says, I'm like a moth to this decay from within. It's similar to this idea of dry rot as well. That's the idea of decay from within. One of the problems about dry rot is you can't actually see it until the whole structure basically is weakened and can come down. So God says, I'm not playing around here. 
It's a picture of God himself bringing the ruin. He's the moth, he says. He's the dry rot. He's going to bring down the house of Israel. He says, judgment's coming. In fact, it's already begun. And that leads us right into that next section of our passage. Judgment is coming for God's people and it's already here. And now God is telling us why, his purpose, what's going on in all of this. Verse 13 tells us that at some point, God's people actually recognized what was going on. They looked around and they saw the dry rot, you might say. Judgment, they realized that things weren't right. It says, when Ephraim, another name for northern Israel, when Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound. In other words, again, God's people knew they needed a doctor. They look down and they think, things aren't very well in our country. Things aren't going swimmingly. What's going on? They realize they need a doctor. The pain couldn't be ignored anymore. And again, maybe like a reluctant man, they finally decided, I got to go to the doctor. But what does the text say? Where did they go? Which doctor, you might say, did they visit? Uh, for the parents of the insurance plans, they see an out-of-network physician, someone not on their insurance plan. It says Ephraim went to Assyria and they sent for the great king. This is the doctor they sing, they send for. Not the Lord God, their covenant God, but well, maybe Assyria can help us out. The great king of Assyria. And there's really a deep irony in all of this. If you kind of know the biblical situation, the historical situation, you can actually read about it if you're interested in 2 Kings 15. You can look at it uh, later, but Assyria itself is actually the ones doing the oppressing of Israel. In other words, Assyria is the one sending raiding parties into Israel and beginning sort of their invasion. And it was a king in Israel, there's a king named Menahem, uh, who sought to placate the king of Assyria. In other words, well, maybe if we can give him some gifts, tell him how great he is, send him some tribute, he'll stop invading our land. But God's words are striking here. Look at these words. He is not able to cure you or heal your wound. See, sometimes getting a free or very cheap doctor isn't really a great deal after all. Uh, The wound cannot. It's not able to be cured that way, God says. Before we move on from this, I want you to see what's really going on here. Sometimes we make, uh, I think, the story of Israel, God's people in the Old Testament, very simple. That basically Israel sinned, God punished them with exile, and that's basically it. But the fact, the prophet is telling us that God was sending sort of little warning uh, uh, flashes ahead of time. Pain and suffering was going on. This was meant to be a sense of God calling them back before exile. See, it was God, we see what he was doing for a purpose. What was his end in doing all of this? It's not punishment for punishment's sake. Uh, From the rest of Hosea, from the other prophets, we can see that God started to send them physical disasters, a kind of adversity to cause his people to turn back to him. But it's even more than just physical hardship too. It was a kind of spiritual wound as well. Uh, Just after our passage today, we didn't read it, but if you have your Bible, look at chapter 6, verse 5, a few verses after. The Lord says these words, I have cut them by the prophets. I've cut them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. So he's just said that 
Israel has a wound. And now God says, the wound was being inflicted by my servants, by my prophets, by my word. This passage is all about wounds. And how did God do that wounding? By His Word, by the preaching of His Word. Remember that verse in Hebrews in the New Testament that says God's Word is like a double-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, to joint and marrow. It, It discerns our thoughts of our heart. We shouldn't lose sight of that image of God's Word when we open God's Word to read it. See, in the next verses, we see that one reason Assyria cannot be the one to heal Israel is because even mighty Assyria, growing imperial Assyria, cannot compare to God as a lion. He says, for I will be like a lion to Ephraim, a young lion to the house of Judah. Again, the irony of all of this is actually going to be Assyria itself who Israel was like, try to invite them over to cure us, who is going to be the ones that take Israel away in exile. But more than that, God is saying, I'm the one behind it. He says, I will tear, I will carry off, which is the word for exile here. Nobody else is going to be the deliverer of Israel. No one can stop God from doing this. God's like a lion who carries off his prey to his lair. That's uh, what God will do, what he'll be. The image of the lion there, God is a lion, continues in verse 15 as well. It says, I will return again to my place, to my lair, until... God says, I'll return there until... What's the condition? All of this talk about judgment, about discipline is there, until... So here's the condition, here's the purpose in all of this until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and seek my face. Notice especially that last phrase as well there. In their distress, they earnestly seek me. Again, this tells us the purpose of the distress. It's in their distress, in that place that they will turn to God. It's in that distress that God says, call out, acknowledge and seek it's a sort of negative. Acknowledge what was wrong and seek the good. Seek me. Admit something about the past and begin something here in the present. And really that's where the next section starts as well. Chapter 6 continues really a lot of these same images and words. But suddenly God isn't speaking. Notice that? Suddenly someone is speaking to God. This is the response to God's judgment. This is the prophet Hosea kind of calling out to his countrymen and really including himself in it. It's a kind of exhortation, an urgent appeal. And really it's the beginning of all that acknowledgement and seeking that was the purpose of the judgment in the first place. He says, come, let's return to the Lord. The previous verse said that the lion was returning to the lair. And now Hosea says, let's return to him. Let's return to the lion. It's the next words that are really, I think, the most beautiful of this entire passage. For he has torn us so that he might heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bind us up. It doesn't really make uh, sense at first glance if you think about it. Let's return to the one who tore us apart. <laughs> Let's return to the one who wounded us. This isn't a common sense way we think about 
pain. That was a really painful experience. Let's do it again. Let's go back to the one who caused us the pain. Who would say that kind of thing? Notice that Hosea is acknowledging, too, that God is the one who did the tearing. That's part of the repentance, part of the confession. He doesn't try to dodge it and say, well, God, it wasn't really you. Sometimes Christians can do this kind of thing. God would never make things difficult on his own people, would he? But part of the repentance, part of the returning to the Lord, is acknowledging that he's the one who stood behind the pain. But it's really all about that purpose clause that's next too. That he might heal us and he will bind us up. Again, it kind of sounds odd. He wounded in order to heal. He tore us apart to bind together. Those are actually all opposites. Uh, healing is what's to counteract a wound. He wounded to heal. Bind up literally means to put together, attach together, to join a division. So he tore us in order to uh, bring us together. But this is really the paradox of how God works. This is all throughout Scripture. True healing comes when the disease is removed. True unity often comes when there's been a division. When we actually talk about the things that are dividing, that are things going on, that are problems. Uh, my avoidance of doctors is often an example of this. Uh, the diagnosis has to come first before the prognosis. There often has to be a surgery, a cutting open, in order to make the thing heal, to make your body heal. I've actually heard stories from a friend of mine, and maybe you've kind of had this experience or someone you know as well, uh, that it may take an injury to you to actually find out there's something even worse uh, going on in your body. A friend had a small injury, and going in to correct that injury, realized, wow, you, that's actually something in you that's even worse going on, going to the doctor for something like a stomach ache and finding out that there's something worse, a cancer, an infection inside, so that that pain in the first place actually ended up being a kind of mercy, a kind of severe mercy to show you what was going wrong. See, God brings distress, not for the distress itself, not because it pleases him itself, not because uh, he uh, takes joy in that, but because he alone can heal. And he brings us that to, we might turn to him. He knows the condition is urgent. He knows that the remedy is something deep and that only he can bring it. So the prophet Hosea can make this appeal to return to the lion that tore them because he's confident that God's true purpose in all of this is love and mercy to bring these things together. He's confident that God does things for the good of his people. That God will bring restoration. He says, after two days, He will revive us. On the third day, He will raise us up. This phrase is meaning to show the kind of immediate response of God. Remember, God had been slow to anger. Then He had acted. Well, it's not going to be then that the Lord is slow to respond in mercy. Sometimes, as parents, we can do this. Say, well, I'm going to forgive you, but it's going to be a slow process. Or we're only going to restore you after a slow thing. God's saying immediately he's going to revive and restore us. He's going to bring his mercy. He's slow to anger, but he's quick to forgive. And just as we have the purpose of God's judgment and discipline, now we have the purpose of his restoration. Why does God restore his people after causing distress? He says that we might live before him, in his presence, 
God's judgment, His discipline is for repentance and repentance is for life and for fellowship. That's its purpose. That's why the prophet is actually so kind of emphatic, almost giddy about returning to God. I love how he says, let's know Him, let's press on to know Him continually. The final words of this passage illustrate the result of coming in repentance to God. What's it like when we return to God acknowledging our guilt. Well, it's a picture of a new day. Look, it says a new creation. It's kind of like a new Eden. Coming morning light, sun dawning, like a well-watered land, no longer desolate. Israel had been called a desert, barren of righteousness, and God's going to water it with His own righteousness. This is a great hope for Israel in a time of judgment. Just as He went away, so He will come again. You might be wondering uh, as what happened to this message of Hosea. He brought this to his people. Uh, he called them to repentance. Did they repent? What happened after Hosea spoke these words? Well, only a few years after Hosea preached this, Assyria came and again leveled northern Israel, took almost all of their citizens into exile, scattering them across their growing empire. Judah in the south, the other part of God's covenant people would last a bit longer, but then they too would be exiled as well. And the return from exile, God promised return from exile, was a great reprieve from that. They had dark times. They were brought back into their own land, as we even uh, Larry spoke about with the prophet Haggai. But in a sense, it didn't match all of these great promises of what it would look like when the people repented. See, like uh, Hosea, the prophet Jeremiah had said, there would be a time uh, in which all of God's people would know God. They wouldn't forget Him anymore. The covenant would be renewed. It would be a great time of celebration. There kind of wasn't that when they returned to the land. There wasn't a great return in terms of uh, the glorious things happening. It's not until we turn to the New Testament, and particularly that night of a Passover night in which Jesus of Nazareth gathered His disciples, took the cup, and said, This is the new covenant in My blood. This is the new covenant. This is what all those promises that the prophets said, like a well-watered day, all His people would know Him. When Jesus takes that cup and says, This is the new covenant in My blood. Jesus says, that he will be bloodied on the cross. He will be torn, suffering full judgment that the sinners, that sinners deserve. These words from Hosea too. On the third day, raised up, not for his own sin, but for his people. That was the coming of a new day, you might say. Hosea's words, a new dawn. And what about a well-watered land pouring out water? Well, then Christ would pour out his spirit. That's a water to pour out his spirit on His people. See, the one who tore Israel all those years ago, Himself would be torn. The lion who tore Himself would be the lion of Judah, torn on the cross for our sakes. This passage points us to Christ. It tells us that Hosea's prophecy came to fulfillment. It points us also ahead to full restoration. As we know, God is bringing a full His full kingdom coming ahead of us to final days of glory. But it's also the case that even as this passage challenged God's people then, I think it should still challenge us today. 
as we think about God and who we are in light of Him. Our God is a God of holy love. He's a fierce love. He has a sovereign love. He disciplines those whom He loves. That was the passage we read from the New Testament. In fact, the word there that is there in the New Testament says He scourges His sons. It's a really harsh word. Scourges His son. Everyone He accepts as His son accepts His discipline, the writer of Hebrews says. We don't have to guess, by the way. It doesn't mean in your own lives you have to sort of wonder what each moment of adversity, well, what is God doing here? What's the particular thing? No, it's simply that God uses those things. He brings those things in our life that we might turn to Him, that we might see these things as discipline for us, raising us up to Him. So don't turn to anyone else with the wounds you bear. Hosea's words are still true. They aren't able to cure you, those other doctors who are not really doctors. They can't heal your wound. Uh, Behind every wound, even that other people give us, is that God Himself who's using it to make us whole. This passage reminds us that the godly life, the one of trusting Christ, isn't without pain. In fact, it teaches us we often have to go through pain to be healed and renewed. You know, ignoring the pain or thinking God can't actually bring pain is, again, much worse. It makes things much worse. But we can choose something we know that's painful. We know that we can turn to God in this because we know that He can heal us. That it's His good through all of this. He meant it for good. That's the assurance of this passage, that He tears in order to heal. This passage is still a call to repentance when we sin, to return. That's what repentance means. Return to the lion. Clearly laid out here. Acknowledge our guilt. Seek His face. Press on to know Him. And He will revive us. He'll raise us up. He'll come to us like spring rain. This is a good passage for children and parents too as we think about discipline. Children, that we uh, help our children know that it's for discipline's sake, not just punishment's sake, but so that we show them our love, so we can show them what's wrong and bring things that are right. Uh, God does this for us and we as parents should do this as well. And finally, I think there's some application to to our kind of larger situation even in our church and in our country today. This is always tricky because America is not the new Israel. Uh, It's not that America sort of uh, replaces that uh, old covenant situation, but it is the case that our country has been shaped by the gospel. Uh, It's had a lot of Christian principles in it. And as many of us know, that there's sort of a turn away from that. But most of all, it's the church in America that is God's new Israel, that it is His people, His covenant people. And it's not hard to see some analogies here, isn't it? I think everybody agrees that things are not well right now. Everybody sees some sickness at things. On the left, on the right, this view, that view. Everybody sees something is wrong. And it's almost like, I've actually heard this sort of in the news, it's almost like repentance. Everybody knows that repentance needs to happen. But what are we repenting of? What's the thing that's wrong? How do we turn back from it? I think what this passage tells us about is that the root issue is, do we know God? Are we seeking Him? See, Israel was tempted to kind of placate the very people who hated them, Assyria, and who ultimately destroyed them. Well, maybe that's the thing we need to do. Make sure those guys are happy. Well, the temptation for the church oftentimes is to look like the world, to gain the world's approval and goodwill, perhaps our greatest 
temptation as well. Maybe we fix this thing over here rather than seeing that the root issue is turning to God. Hosea 6 tells us that whatever ills we should see around us, and we see them around us, should drive us to God, should drive us to repentance and see that it's for real good. Real repentance is for a real good. So let's press on to know the Lord. I can't finish this message without telling you something that inspired me to think about this passage, and that's reading uh, C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia to our kids. Um, and if you know the story, uh, the main ruler of Narnia is, in fact, of course, a lion, the great lion, Aslan. Uh, he's been told, it's been told that he is uh, not a tame lion. He's not a safe lion, but he is good. And there's a particular scene that I think captures this passage in Hosea so uh, so well. I can't actually help but think that Lewis maybe had it in mind, but I have no idea. It's in a silver chair. Uh, and in this beginning of this book, two of the young children find themselves in that other world in Narnia and Aslan's country. Uh, this young girl, Jill Pohl, uh, had actually done something very foolish and seen, seen her friend Eustace blown away through the air to who knows where. Uh, and it's by a lion. And she is very thirsty. She's looking for a stream. But there she finds that same lion as well guarding the stream, and here's the conversation. It says that Jill is terrified of the lion, but she works up enough courage to ask the lion, can he please go away so that she can have a drink? He says no. So she says, well, can you promise that you won't hurt me while I get a drink? And the lion says, I will make no promise of that. And then finally she says, well, you don't eat girls, do you? And hoping for a no as the answer, the lion doesn't exactly lessen that fear when he says, I have swallowed up girls and boys, men and women, kings and emperors and cities and realms and worlds. Well, that's not a very reassuring answer. So Jill says, well, then I won't drink. And he says, you'll die of thirst then. She says, well, I'll find another stream to drink from. He says, there is no other stream. And it's here... Lewis says that Jill had to face the lion. And his words were, it was the worst thing she ever had to do. But she did it. She came to the lion and drank. And it was the most refreshing water she had ever tasted. Beloved, let's return to the lion. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray together. God, our Father... Your word is indeed a two-edged sword. It pierces us through. We pray, O oh God, that in piercing us with your word, that you might make us whole. Do your healing work among us. Remove our sin. Cause us to press on to seek you, even in our distress. We give you thanks for your Son, our Savior, Christ our Lord, the great Lion of the tribe of Judah who himself was torn for us and raised up on the third day. Help us to call others to come to him, to know him, that he might come to us as showers of rain for our weary land. For we ask this in his name. Amen.